0: Our notes are available, uh, if you want any more, We've, we handed some out in church, but they are available on our church website under, if you go to the website in the bottom where it says few Documents, if you go to my file with my name on it, with Don Hewitt, and you go down through there and you'll find a paper called Manmade made Theological Terms, and that's what we're looking at today. Uh, so let's begin with a word of prayer, and uh, we will get into the study. Father, once again, we're thankful that we have the privilege of studying this book. And we know, Father, when we come to this book, we're coming to a book that is true, that doesn't have mistakes. It is not a book based upon opinion that will change every five or ten years. But this is based upon a settled fact that is always accurate, is always true. It's a timeless book. It's timeless because the things that are in it are not going to change. We're not going to find a new opinion next week that you're going to come out with on something in Scripture. Father, may we be those who are willing to study this book and to take it literally, because then we know, Father, a lot of things that may be difficult for some people are not going to be difficult at all when we take your book for what it says. Bless in this time now and in the service that follows as well, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. So we are in a series that we call Problems We Don't Have When We Take Scripture Literally. And we're in a section called Man-Main Theological Terms, and we probably are going to have another message or two in Sunday school on terms that are theological terms, as I call them, that sometimes are not used very well. Now, we start off by saying in our introduction that the one thing that Bible teachers and theologians have in common with unsafe, secular, academic, the academic world is the use of what we call technical terms. Now, when we come to the Bible and come to Christianity and theology, we prefer to call those te- theological terms. But, and some theological terms come right out of, of some of the words in Scripture. But many do not. And therein lies the problem. Even those terms that are built on Bible words may not be well understood by those who have not gone to a Bible college or seminary. And, uh, and beyond that, sometimes the usage of these terms when they're taken from the Bible, there'll be terms that no longer match how the Bible uses those words. Because language changes over time, and the church and Christians are, are, not, are not exempt from changing the use of words, too. We go over, over time, words mean different things to people. They're used differently. And so, you'll notice I put in here, I says, while such terms may be acceptable in academic settings, the problem is they don't stay there. Now, what I mean by that is that quite often... There are terms that educated guys, men that went to seminary, Courtney, Kevin, Scott, Dan. There are terms that we've heard and, and hear and recognize that maybe most people haven't even heard of. And they theological terms. And so it's better to keep them in seminary. And that's why, personally, I, I don't like to use theological terms too much. I like to just tell you what it means in everyday language. And that way, there's no question about it. And we don't want to make assumptions that people know what they don't know. Now, one place where taking the Bible literally will clear up confusion and error is this term, the will of God. Now, everybody here has heard that expression. I'm sure you've all heard about the will of God. And particularly, I know when, when you're younger, young people in college and that age bracket, they're always interested in knowing what the will of God is. And usually it's about things like boyfriend, girlfriend, marriage and job and career and college and those things, which are very important at that point. And as you get a little bit older and things are settled, you may not think about it as much, but it's still important to all of us. So the will of God. Now the term, the will of God, comes straight out of the New Testament. But somehow over the years, this has become a theological term that does not match how Scripture uses it when it's referring to the believer. The will of God has become something. It's become a theological term. And what happens sometimes with those terms is they put a name to it, the will of God, and it becomes exalted as though it's some mystical thing. It's, it's the will of God. Another word that we may deal with is the word holy. Boy, that word is holy. That's a, that's a word that intimidates people. I see Courtney smiling. It does. You've probably seen that too, brother. It, it intimidates people. But it's not a complex word, and it's not a word that can't be put into simple English. And when it's brought into simple English, everybody understands it. And I know that, I know that people like to have their, their Bible and their theology up, and they like to have it sounding impressive and everything, which is fine. It's okay to, call, to use impressive terms as long as we understand what they mean. And the will of God is one I think that has been so misused that we don't always see people that understand it. Now, you'll notice what I put in here. Sadly, this term has been distorted, and as is illustrated by a well-known, well-respected theologian. This is somebody who has a lot more clout and a lot more respectability than I would ever have. He's well-known, and so the danger is when you get somebody that's well-known, they'll believe them before they'll believe Courtney or Kevin or Scott or myself or Dan because they have a reputation, and people take their word for it. Don't ever take people's word when it doesn't match Scripture. So in an article entitled... What is the will of God and how do we know it? A writer has, makes two aspects to the will of God. And I believe he misread scripture on both counts and is wrong on both of them. But it's the second aspect of the will of God that we want to look at this morning. And here, in what we would call the will of God for the believer. Now, his first, the will of God, looks at the, what we would call the decree, the decree, when God willed and determined certain things in the decree, uh, yeah, that's that's fine. Those things are going to happen because they were determined and they would be done. But now the second one. This is what he says about the will of God concerning the believer. And it's in bold font. You'll notice the author states, quote, now, th- now the other meaning for the will of God in the Bible is what we call the will of command. His will is what he commands us to do. You hear that? He commands us to do so the will of God for the so is the will of God for the believer, nothing more than some diva, divine commandments. Now this is somebody that's a lot better known than I am, and if you fellows afterwards want to know who it is, I'll tell you. It's it's not important to know, but some of our guys will be familiar with the author. So, how does the Bible taking us? How does taking the Bible literally, literally prevent us from turning the will of God into the will of command? Because I don't believe it means that at all. It's really very simple. The first problem is that when taken literally, the word command is only used for the Christian one time. One time. Now, at the bottom of the page, I give, I, I will give you the number there's an arrow near the bottom, of page one. It says, "For those who wish to check out how G one one seven eight five, this is for people that use e sword, which we encourage you to use e sword. You can plug in G 1785 and it'll take you to every place that the Greek word is used. And for most people, I think it's better that I give you that than tell you what the, the Greek word is and then hope that you'll look it up and try and. Uh, it's a little harder. This is much e sword is so easy. If you folks aren't using it, please consider it. Esword.net is completely free. Now, I have to confess, free is a price I can't even pass up. I just can't. I, I actually did make a donation, though. So, uh, But yeah, I, I really encourage you to get it. So, the problem is, the word command is only used for the believer one time in the New Testament. One time only. And it is found in John thirteen thirty four and 35. Now, I have it printed in your notes. You can turn there if you want to. But I printed the, the notes in your notes, the King James Version, and you'll notice the word commandment occurs. John thirteen thirty four and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. A new commandment. Now, please note, only when Scripture says something is a commandment, is it a commandment. I have no place for and I have, I have no tolerance for when people start reading words into Scripture. Please, folks, if you see somebody reading something into Scripture and they say, this word, this verse of Scripture means this, and you don't see that word there, you have a right to question that person. And I don't care what their credentials are. I don't care if they're more respected than, than all of us men here put together. If it doesn't say so in Scripture, it doesn't make sense. I'll give you the best illustration in the book. Look at Matthew five twenty eight. Uh, You probably all know this verse, but this is a prime example of where people misread the Bible because they read in something that they think belongs there and it doesn't belong there because my authority to change the Word of God, it doesn't exist. No one has the authority to start reading things into the Bible. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble. People read things into the Bible all over the place that aren't there and they make a mishmash out of the Word of God. And I get frustrated because this is God's Word. It's not somebody's word. They don't have the right to change it. Matthew 5, 28. Well-known passage. But I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, if you know the definition of sin from 1 John 3, 4, it is the person that acts lawless. Sin is acting lawless. Sin is lawlessness. It's when you act as though there are no restraints. But it's when you act It is not when you think. Please note the difference. Acting and thinking are different. My favorite illustration that I've used recently is the expense of our pastor. Pastor Kevin's driving down the road, and all of a sudden the lights come on, and here he's pulled over and say, I know you were thinking about driving 70 miles an hour, Pastor. (laughs) And, and, and pastor's doing 50, and the, and the speed limit is 65, and he's up to 50, and he's just cruising along thinking about something. He gets poor says, "You were driving 70. you were thinking of driving 70 miles an hour. I'm going to give you a t-. Could they do that? Could you be charged with a crime for thinking it? Now, if, if humans won't even do that, do you think God's going to do that? Look again at Matthew 5:28. Do you see the word "sin" here? Does anybody see the word "sin" here? Because I want to see your translation of the Bible if you see sin here, unless you've written it in yourself. It says they've committed adultery in, already with her in their heart. That already in their heart, do you know what that's telling you? Already means they're looking for the opportunity. He's already decided he wants to do it because the heart is the mind, the emotions, the will. Somebody's already made up their mind. They want to do it. But they haven't done it. There again, if past, even if Pastor Kevin was thinking about driving 70 in a 55 zone, They can't do anything until he actually does it. You can't get a ticket for thinking about something. I know some of the people in our government practically want to do that, but you can't get a ticket. So please, you'll notice point number one. Only when the scripture says something is a commandment, is it a commandment. Now, that will also fit a number of other things. You'll find in the Old Testament, people want to read covenants into the Bible where the word covenant doesn't occur. You could make a note in your margin if you want to Is to see, to see Genesis 12.1 because people call that a, the Abrahamic covenant. If you read Genesis 12.1-3, it doesn't say covenant. If it doesn't say covenant, is it a covenant? No. No, and anybody that reads it in, <clears throat> I don't want to get on a hobby horse. I put my ho- gave my hobby horse a day off, so he's, he's out to pasture. I had to laugh. I was telling when I talked to Brother Dave Penny on Thursday. I told him, what I used to use at the church in, 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 uh, in Tiger. I had a corner and I put pet peeves by it. I put a mark every time I put a pet peeve in there. Pretty soon the whole thing was just black. <laughs> it was all pet peeves. So I told him, I said, well, I limit myself to one pet peeve per week. So, <laughs> well, some of us have a lot of them. Now, so you'll notice I put down point number two in the bottom of page one. This, the word for commandment is G1785. If you use e it is used 18 times in Paul's writings, but not one of them is ever used as a grace principle to the church. All of them are going to be referring to the Mosaic Law. Now, don't take my word for it. You have the references right at the bottom of the page. And by the way, I didn't catch that typo. It says first, Coininthians I guess that's for people who like to tithe. The coins, they want the shekels to come in, so it should be First Corinthians. But you'll see, those, there's 18 verses down there. You can look them up. And if, the, if you find one of those that's connected to the, how the Christians should live and something it's a commandment for us to do, you come and show me, because the only one I know in Scripture is found in John 13:34 and 35. Now, if that be the case, turn over to the top of page 2 if if the only use of commandment is for loving one another for the christian then how can you say the will of god is 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 a commandment how can you say it's a commandment it's not used anywhere else but here the only place it's a commandment we only commanded we're, we're told to do is we're to love one another that's the only commandment so how can these other things how can the will of god be a commandment how can all these other things be a commandment You see, that's what they do, is is they they take every imperative where it says, do this, and say, that's a commandment. Well, based upon what I see here, and look at the word commandment in Paul's writings, you can go through those and see how many times the grace believers commanded to do anything. And you look at those 18, I challenge you this afternoon, don't take my word for it. You look at those and you'll see that there aren't any. There just aren't any. Now, when anybody reads something in the scripture, point number one up here, we call it eisegesis. An eisegesis should always be regarded as the ability to create an error, the ability to make the scriptures say what you want to, or it's just plain old ignorance. It's ignorance or worse. It's error or worse. And sometimes it's what we call heresy. And heresy is something that's intentional, by the way. So now, let's go a little bit further. Do you notice what we have? Point number two. The will of God is, is stated in those terms 21 times in the epistles to the church. And none of them use a commandment of God or commanded by God. All 21 verses are at the end of these notes. Now, if you look back at the end of these notes, there's a page that I printed out for you. And I have 21 verses here. And all of them have the will of God. And you can go through and look at them and say, Is Don right? Is there, is there somewhere that there's a commandment involved in the will of God? If there is, you'll see it. And if you show it to me, I'll be, I'll be more than happy to get up and admit that I was mistaken about something. If I make a mistake, I'm willing to admit it. I've done it before. I've often said I should have peppermint soles in my shoes because when you put your foot in your mouth, at least it would taste good. And it might even do good for your breath. Who knows? So... Now, the second problem in calling the will of God the will of command is it completely, thoroughly misuses and ignores the meaning of the one word that is translated will, and so the will of God. Now, here's a problem we do have. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that the English text of Scripture is usually pretty good for most believers and usually tells you most of what you need to know. And very often you don't need any, any extra help from the original languages. However, in this particular case, we do need a little help. And so we're going to give you some e numbers again to show you that there are four different words, one, two nouns and two verbs, in other words, just two words with a noun and a verb of each, that are translated "will." Now, that's the problem because there's a distinct difference. Now, you'll notice point number one. The, Greek, uh, uh, second, point, the second problem is that calling the will of God completely, the will of God, God's will of command, completely ignores the meaning of the word will. Now, there are two, so we're in point A. There are, the Greek New Testament has two words translated will. Now, an important principle. This is a very important principle to understand when, the, when there are two Greek or Hebrew words translated in the King James or any other version that you use that are translated as the same word, there is going to be a distinction between them. There's going to be something there important because if, all were, if, there was only, if there wasn't any difference, there'd only be one word for it. If will was only one thing here, there'd only be one word, or actually one noun, one verb. There'd only be two forms of will in the New Testament. But if there's four different words translated will, then there's a difference between them, and one of them is going to be important to us when we see what it means. Now, an example of how those words can be important. Pastor Kevin, in his series on love, has been going over and mentioning periodically the fact that there are different words from the Greek text translated love, and it makes a difference. But I want to show you the the classic example. I want you to look over... At, um, let's see, at John 21, you can see something here. Now, this is a, I think some study Bibles actually have caught this and have put put a note in here about the language. But by and large, most, I think, have taken this as just uh, saying, well, Peter denied the Lord three times, and so he gets three, so Jesus asked him three times, do you love me, so that he can say, Three, three affirmations to replace three denials. Well, that may, there may be some validity to it, but I don't think that's the real point. And I think the real point is missed because of how the translation occurs, because you have two words for love. If you look at verse 15, beginning at, this is John 21, verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? This is in your Esau, G25. If you're using Esword, it is G25, the word for love, agape, the part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's it's, it's come to use, it's been redefined as being God's kind of love. So Simon Peter, son of John, do you lovest thou me? He say unto me, Lord, thou thou knowest that I love thee. Wait a minute, I love thee? You might write next to that G5368. That is not the same word for love. And if you don't recognize that, you're going to miss something important. Because this is a word for love that is also in a noun translated as friend. And it means, I'm fond of. So Jesus asks, do you love me with the kind of love I have? And Peter's response is, you know I'm fond of you. Now that's why it's going to be asked again. Because he doesn't answer the way Jesus asked it. Jesus said, do you love me? And he says, you know I'm fond of you. There's a big difference between love and fondness between these two words because you're not going to find fondness used of how the Christian relates to other Christians. You find it's agape, it's love, it's G25 that's going to be used. Oh, the other word's important in its own place, but it is not the same as the agape that God gives. So Peter, you'll see it. So what Peter does here, he says, I'm fond of you. And he saith unto him, feed my lambs. Jesus said unto him the second time, Simon Son of Jonas, lovest thou me agape? G25. He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, you know that I am fond of you. G5368. You see what's happening here? The reason he gets asked a second time is not because of the three denials. It's because what Peter does is he doesn't give him much of an answer. Peter is probably at least honest. I'm fond of you, Lord. I'm fond of you. That's not the same thing, but now here comes the crashing blow that's really going to hurt Peter. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, are you fond of me? G five three six eight. He switches from agape to the lesser form to, are you fond of me? Wasn't well, that what Peter said? Yeah, you know I'm fond of you. And so now Peter's being questioned. He says, I'm fond of you, and Jesus said, Do you re- are you really fond of me? That's, you notice what happens. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Are you fond of me? He's grieved because that's what he's been saying. He's saying, I'm fond of him. And Jesus says, Are you really fond of me? After all, didn't he deny him in the garden three times? Are you really fond of me? So that, that's what dug at Peter. There's why you see this. I don't think, personally, I don't believe the three responses or the three questions are because he's giving him three chances to, to say he was he loved him no the three reasons in there is because peter never was willing to say i love you i'll give i actually i think i'll give peter passing grade on that because he's honest he couldn't say he loved him the evidence said otherwise didn't it from the garden and he's gone back to fishing does that say he loves jesus he's abandoned what he was doing he's gone back to fishing in this chapter and he's taken others with him his influence was strong enough he took like four or five other men with him that had been involved in fishing all of them left they weren't going to be involved with whatever was going to come after Christ arose. So did he love them? No, at least he's being honest. And those three times that he asked them, because Peter really, really Peter couldn't go above being fond, and that wasn't exactly very much. Now you see what we're saying. You're going to see the same thing. On the bottom of the page, you'll notice point number two on page two, you have the, the King James translates. Two different words, the first two are a noun and a verb, thelo and thelema, G2307 and 2309. And also G1012 and 1014, which is boule and boulemi, if you want the Greek words. That's how they're pronounced. All those words are together translated as will. You've got four words translated as will. Now, do you see a problem? I do. Because these words are not identical. You really, basically you have, you have two words. You, you can say basically you have one word. You just pick out the verb and say "bulamai" versus "thelo." What's the difference between the two? Are they the same thing? There's an important difference because one is used to the will of God and the other is never used to the will of God. And if we see the difference here, it'll save us a lot of grief. It'll help us to understand the Bible. And if we can understand what God's Word says a little bit better, don't we want to do that? I don't, like, I don't like to get real academic, but there's times when you can't avoid being academic. And so let's take a look at it. <clears throat> the first two, Othello and Thelema, G2307 and 2309. Now, it's for the sake of time, and I'm glad I did this because our time is getting away from us. You can see that the first two, are uh, 2307 and 2309, are used of something that one wants or desires, Here's two examples of it. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. And that's how I like what Pastor Kevin says, we don't make up anything. We just read what's there. And, I, I put, and every time Kevin says that, I say, amen. He's got a good way with words anyway. Ephesians 2, 3, among whom also we all had our conversation, or our style of life, in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, you notice his desires. Here it's translated desire, but this word is also, this is 2307, it's also translated will frequently. And so people define it as being desirous will, which is not a bad way to define it, but I like to make it even simpler. It's what somebody wants. It's what the the flesh wants. So we can say, you'll notice that the last statement under Ephesians 2.3, while the flesh desires, it doesn't have the ability to carry out what it wants. We have to do it. That's where temptation and sin come from. All the flesh can do is it can send up desires. It can tell you, this is what I want. It's up to us to carry it out. But you see, if this word meant that it was commanded or demanded, then somehow the flesh would have to do it on its own. It would be an automatic principle that, like your heartbeat, would just beat without you knowing about it. Because you don't think about your heart beating; It just does it. And notice the second one, Mark 14, 36. This is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's speaking. He says, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will. Now, is he saying not what I determine? No, but what you will. Now, that wilt, that wilt at the end of the sentence really should be wilting a little bit more because it's really, it's, it's, I believe it's not in the text. It's, it's implied but the word says, not what I will. Now it's pretty obvious that Jesus is here praying to the Father and he doesn't want to go through this death. So what is it? Not what I desire, not what I want. Does that make sense, folks? This is, that's all you're saying. You say, not what I want. You see the word will and it sometimes makes people think, oh, this is so powerful. No, he's just saying, this is not what I want. Nobody chooses to go through, nobody wants to go through. So. The other word that becomes important, point B at the bottom of the page, the other word, G102, G1012, and 1014, bulamai and boule, that means something that one has determined to do. And here you see it in Luke 23 50 and 51 at the bottom of the page. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor. He was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the council. There's your word. It's translated council, but normally tra- often translated will. He was he would, he would not consented to the council indeed of them. He was of Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who also waited for the kingdom of God. Now, that, that the religious leaders had con- determined to put Jesus to death is pretty obvious, because he's, <laughs> Joseph here wants to take the body and bury it. So they're determination was carried out. They determined and carried it out. Now you have one other reference of it I think that's pretty that's pretty telling. Acts 27, 43. Now this is Paul when he's on his way to Rome. He's in, he's in bonds. He's on a ship as a prisoner. There's a gentleman named Julius that's a centurion that's going to take him there. And for some reason... God stirs up the heart of Julius so that he becomes fond of Paul, and he, he wants to take care of him. And so when they get in the shipwreck, the ship is breaking up in the context of this, and it's, it's, every man, it's, it's everybody overboard, all men overboard. Everybody get out of the ship. It's, it's, it's gone. And so it says, But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they that, they that could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. So the the, the centurion's action shows he was determined to save Paul's life because he stopped them. It says he stopped these people from doing. He was determined that Paul would get there and he made a special provision. He said, get on boards and everybody go there. He he kept all the other prisoners alive because he was determined to keep Paul. Now, here's here's the real clincher to this whole thing. In all the references to the will of God, Scripture uses G2307, Thelema, it's the word we saw that means what somebody wants. Now you can see why this is important. Do you know what the will of God simply means, folks? What does God want you to do? Now most of the time it's going to it's well, most of the time it's going to be for your good all the time. Most of the time we'll even recognize it. That's what the will of God is. It's what God wants you to do. Now, I get frustrated because people will, will gravitate to that other idea. It's the will of command. God's commanded you to do this. Oh, please, we're not under the law, and we're not under a system of commandments. We live by grace. Grace makes service. See, this, see the plaque back there? Grace, make, grace makes all service to God voluntary. And, you know, that includes the will of God, too. You know, it's, you, you, can, you can tell. Look at, look at uh, Romans chapter 12. Very well-known passage. If you notice something is stated here. If this was a commandment, would Paul have said it this way? Paul said something in Romans 12, chapter 1. It wouldn't make any sense if it was a commandment. But if it's a statement of what God wants, it makes perfect sense. Look at how it is. "...I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service." And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may improve what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The will of God is for you to give your body as a living sacrifice. But why would he say this? I beseech you by the mercies, the tender mercies of God. Why would you bring those up? If it's a commandment, you wouldn't have to say that, would you? I wouldn't say that if for a commandment. You didn't have back in the Old Testament, where you go back to Exodus 20, can you imagine God saying, now I beseech you by the tender mercies, you have no other God before me. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Could you imagine doing that? That's not how it operates. You see, the very way, even if we hadn't looked at how this word is used, the, the difference between these two words, by looking at this, you'd get a pretty good idea that the will of God is not some stern, mm, I'll get you if you don't do it. It's what God wants from you. That's all it is. Now you can look at these, no- these notes back here and you can see there's things God wants from you back here on, these, on the last page, page 4. You can see, I'll show you a good one, way down in the middle of the page, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Is it a commandment? No, it isn't. What God wants is for you and I to give thanks in everything. Now why? Why is that so? You know, if I'm giving thanks and everything, what am I doing? I'm realizing, who appointed those circumstances in my life? Who brought this into my life? I'm, I'm, I, have a, I have a flat tire. One time I had a flat tire when I was at Woodburn, and we were going to the class, and it was raining. Of course it was raining, and I had a flat tire. Perfect time. It had to rain, Scott. It had to rain. And so I got out there, and the first thing I did is I said, Thank you, Father. And there was another, another Christian with me, and he heard me say that, and it really affected him. I, I never had to say anything about my relationship to the Lord. He saw and he remarked at the meeting that how I acted while we were waiting. We got, I had AAA and I got somebody to come and change the tire. So I, I was doubly thankful for that. But I gave thanks even before that. Now, why did I do that? It's because what God wanted, and I recognized God brought these circumstances into my life. And of all things, it added to my testimony with another believer and encouraged them to say, hey, this guy, he's a Bible teacher. He's for real. Now, if I'd have gotten out there and thrown a hissy fit all over the place, and got the jack out of the trunk of the car and thrown it down the ground and started cussing and swearing, would that have made a difference? Well, there was a time in my my younger years, even as a Christian, I might have done something. Maybe wouldn't have thrown the jack on the ground, but I might have said a few choice words. But I didn't. I didn't. And so it was something God wanted. But you know what? It was good for me. So when you see the will of God, you should remember one other thing. It's what God wants, but it's good for you because if we keep remembering who is involved in our life, it just might be that I want to live up to my position in Christ. If I remember God is doing all these things in my life, so maybe I should be paying attention to what's happening and realizing who is active in my life and realize it's for my good. It'll change a lot of things if I just do that one little thing. Give thanks in everything. Even things you don't like? Yeah, I didn't like a flat tire in the rain. That's a classic example. I mean, you think, and I look at it now, and I kind of chuckle to myself. I say, God did a perfect thing. It was cold, it was rainy, and it was dark. Perfect time to have a flat tire. Now, if you can give thanks at a time like that, then God's done something in your life because I don't do that on my own. That's not something that I would have done. That's because God's done a work in my life. I give him the credit. Now, coming back to our notes then. If, now you can see why this is important. If, this, if the will of God simply means this is what God wants you to do, then you can see something about it. If God had used the other term, the will of God would not be something that was voluntary. It wouldn't, do, it wouldn't be something you could do to give God what He wants. Now I want you to think about it for a moment. By taking the word of God literally... We're gonna avoid we're gonna avoid two problems here, and one of them is a good thing to avoid. The first one is we're gonna understand the will of God is not the will of command. We're simply gonna see that this is what God wants us to do. It's not it's not demanding, it's not terrible. But the second thing is the most important part, is we are not gonna miss out on the privilege of giving God something He wants. Do you realize that? When it says it's the will of God, God says He wants it. Now I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life, many a time when I thought about the things uh, that God's done. i thought about my position in Christ and how God sees me. And, and this joy and happiness wells up inside you. If you understand it and believe it it will affect how you feel even. Now I, I know Pentecostals and some people want to feel all the time and I'm not against feeling as long as it comes as a result of what I'm thinking. If I'm thinking from scripture and I feel good that's great. And so I feel so good when I feel like all these things God has done for me I start feeling good and I say oh God if there's just some way I could show you how much I appreciate you how much I love you. Duh. There is a way I can do it. The will of God is what God wants. God doesn't want me to go out and and become a missionary. Not at my age. God doesn't want me to go out and and, and knock on every door in Titusville or Wedgefield. That's not what God wants. What God wants is the will of God. It's what God says he wants from me. That's all. That's all. People make so much more out of this. And they make a, a terrible thing. God is not a Dictator. God wants certain things. Let's take a moment. It's not in your notes, but look back at John 4. There's something else that the Father wants. And you know what? It's going to be good if we do it. And it's an interesting thing because, well, well, let's read the verses first. Now, this is the woman in Samaria. And this story, I really love this story. John has got some of the most fascinating stories that are true stories. In, the, in, in all the four Gospels, with this woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. And so in dealing with her, uh, beginning at verse 22, Jesus says to her, Now the Samaritans uh, were somewhat Jewish. Uh, how good they were, how much they followed the law, the law up to this point. I'm not sure I can say they were really good in everything, but they did some of the things they should. So Jesus said unto her in verse 22 of John 4, You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of or from the Jews. But the hour, now notice this, but the hour comes and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. What does it say? For the Father, what? Seeks such to worship Him. God is a spirit and they that worship, God is spirit and they that worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now I know it doesn't say in verse 23 that that God's will is for that. But it says God is seeking that. Now, what does that mean? It means God wants that to be done. Now, God wants us to worship Him. Does God need the worship? Does God need worship from me? (sighs) No. No, God doesn't need anything from me. It would be nice if I gave Him a little obedience. That would be one thing He wants from me. But He doesn't need anything. He might want obedience. But it says He seeks worshipers. Now, why? Well, you know... If I'm worshiping God like I ought to be, and I'm recognizing that God is, for example, that he's good. Goodness is is God's ability to maintain his own happiness and his desire for his creatures, for his own to be happy. That's us. So if I'm recognizing that and all of a sudden I look at my life and I see my grandson back there and he gets playful and silly like he did last night. I'll have to show you, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a spoiled, doting grandfather. No, no, I don't make any bones about it, I admit it. So you don't have to accuse me, I admit it, I'm guilty, as charged. But when they do something like that, and I see him acting up, like, and then I say, Father, you are so good that you've allowed me to see this. You say, God, I'm, I recognize what God's character is, and then I can see in my life how God is using that for my benefit. He's done something to make me happy. He didn't have to do that, and I can also say grace. You see, when I'm worshiping God, when you're worshiping God, if we're doing it right, we're reminding ourselves of something that is going to come along and we're going to be able to use it at some point. It's going to stay in your mind if we do it as a routine thing. That's why it's important to know the, the, the doctrine of theology proper. It's not just the academic facts. It's, these are things that affect how I live. If I know that God is gracious because of his love, he shows grace, then I look at my life and so many things happen in my life I don't deserve. And then, you know what? Hebrews says, I'm a believer priest that can offer spiritual sacrifices. I can confess his character. Now, I can't confess it if I don't know it, can I? I'm not going to confess if I don't know it. And how am I going to know it? How is it going to be in my mind? It's because I'm worshiping and that's what the Father seeks. And the Father's not seeking it because he needs it or because he wants it. God doesn't sit there and say, oh, Pastor Kevin was, was worshiping today and he reminded me I'm holy. That's right. I forgot. No. But Pastor Kevin might need to remember that for some reason. Or, Pastor, or pa- Pastor John might need to remember that God is good and gracious. No, these things, when we worship God, we are the beneficiaries. It isn't that God needs it. God seeks it because it will be good for us. It will change your life entirely. And it makes it easier to give thanks, by the way, too. And everything give thanks. It's a little bit easier if you remember that God is righteous. So something happened to me. Here I am out in the dark in the rain with a flat tire. But God is righteous, so I know it was the right thing to happen because God let it happen, and God's righteous. So that made it a little bit easier to give thanks. And I know that God, God is loving. He wants what's best for me. And so there was something about that that was in my best interest as well. Can you beat that? That's what worship's about. That's, what, that's why the will of God and these things that God wants, all we have to do is give God what he wants. You know, if you ever feel like you want to do something to show God your appreciation, do what I finally realized to do. Just give God what He says He wants in Scripture. Is that so hard? You got it back here. You have a list of places that says this is the will of God. God's not asking a whole lot. But if we don't understand, if we don't take the Bible literally, we're going to miss out on the privilege of understanding what the will of God is. We're going to miss out on on the bigger privilege of being able to give God what He wants. Think about it. God actually wants something from us. It's based on obedience, but they're very simple things. And all the time we think, gee, well, I wish I could give God back something. You know, you can. You can. Look at the will of God and do what it is. Very simple. Nothing hard about it. Even, even, even somebody who didn't go to seminary could do that. <laughs> I say that lightheartedly because it's true. You don't have to have a lot of education. You just have to read the Bible and take it literally, and you'll avoid so many problems, and this is one of them. You won't be confused about what the will of God is. It's just what God wants. By his grace, I hope every one of us makes it a habit to do what the will of God is, especially giving thanks and everything. Very important in the time we live right now. It's a mess out there. Can you look at the society we're living in and say, thank you, Father, for this time we're living? That's really what God wants, and not just that you say those words, but that you understand who it is that set them up, and it's his plan, and if we love him, we will be thankful, and that's all God wants. That's all God wants. Let's pray, shall we? Father, today, we're thankful that in the study of your word, if we take it literally, there are things that are so much simpler than most theologians and Bible teachers want to make them. When we look at this, the term, the will of God, Father, as Paul uses it, we realize that it's not some dark and mystical secret. It's not some terrible, horrendous work that means we have to go to, to some tribe in some remote world, section of the world where the natives would probably want to kill us and eat us alive. It's very simply that we're doing things that you want, and those things are specified in the New Testament. And when we do those things, Father, then we are doing something that is something that is easily overlooked but is so important we're actually giving back to you something that you want from us. Father, you need nothing from us, but you do want something from us. And this is our opportunity, Father, to show our gratitude by simply doing something that you want. And we know then you will see the glory. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. Now in, in the service that follows, may the message be clear. May it be taken in by your people. May it be blessed as well. And in between, may the fellowship we have together Be sweet as we show our love to one another in Christ. We ask now in our Savior's name. Amen.